Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. NASA announced that they've found evidence of flowing water on the surface of Mars. We're launching a series of programmes that will probe what it's going to take to send people to the red planet. We'll hear from NASA on what they're looking for in a would-be space traveller, talk to the UK's first ever astronaut, and with the help of a human centrifuge, we find out what the human body has to go through to get into space in the first place. Try and be as relaxed as you can and just watch what happens to the vision, see how it feels. We'll start very low, okay. to the risk of actually losing consciousness because you haven't got enough blood going to your brain, it's very, very low. So it'll just give you a feel of what it's like. It's uh, sort of the acceleration you might get or the gravity you might feel at Jupiter, that kind of level, to 2.6 okay. G, so a fair Excellent. amount. Plus, four bacteria that can prevent asthma and a new magnetic material to protect you in a car crash. My name is Chris Smith. And I'm Kat Arney, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, the presence of four strains of intestinal bacteria could make the difference between a child breathing easily and developing lifelong asthma. From the University of British Columbia, Brett Finlay. Really, this is the first time we can actually demonstrate certain microbes influence asthma. We did this in children. We had 319 children from across Canada that were already being studied from birth to age five. And what we did is we collected the feces from these children at three months of age and one year of age. And then we began to analyze the microbes in there. Initially, we didn't see any gross differences, either at three months or one year in the total bug population. But when we dug really deep, we started to see signature microbes, and we quickly zeroed in on four microbes. And we abbreviated these things, FLVR. This is the first letters of their complex microbial names. And the bottom line of this whole study was that if you had these four microbes in your intestine at three months of age, you basically had a very decreased risk of asthma. If you didn't have these microbes or you had low levels of these microbes, you had a much higher risk of asthma. And those kids have now all gone on to develop asthma. Now, is this biologically plausible, though? Is, is there some way you can tie the presence or absence of those four specific strains of microbe to subsequent asthma or wheezing in these children. Right. So there's a strong correlation. We also looked at some of the molecules that might be influencing asthma. There's things called short-chain fatty acids, which affect inflammation, which could be related to asthma. But I think that the experiment that proved these microbes actually have a role is we took mice, and these are what we call germ-free mice. They're born sterilized by C-section. They have no microbes in them, period. And we then took the feces from a child at three months of age. We know that child actually went on to get asthma later in life. We took their child feces and then put it into these microbe-free mice, plus or minus these four microbes that we grew in the lab. 
And then we induced experimental asthma in these mice later in life. And what we found is that when you add these four microbes, these mice basically don't get experimental asthma. So those four microbes alone in human feces prevented asthma. So that's the best correlation we've got so far of proving these four actually have some kind of role in influencing asthma. So how do you therefore account for the fact that we get these microbes very early in life? By three months, they may or may not be there, or even earlier. Yet the asthma problem doesn't kick in until much later. So how do you account for that time lag if these bacteria are playing a role in the development of the condition? What we know is that, and this has really come in the last few years, is that the gut microbes play a very central role in how our immune system develops very early in life. And what we think, and we've proven it in mice but not in children yet, is that these microbes are actually playing a role in how the immune system is developing these children and setting it up, whether it's going to be allergic or not, very early in life. And we think these microbes are pushing it towards a less allergic-type immune system. And if you don't have these microbes, you then trend towards a more allergic-type system, which then leads to your increase in asthma later in life. And it's not just limited to asthma. We're finding these microbes play a central role in the immune system, which affects all sorts of diseases. And this is now coming out in many different fields, showing the early life microbes play a central role in how we actually develop immunologically. So would one strategy be to, now you've identified these four that seem to be critical players, to come up with some kind of supplement that's got them in, rather like a probiotic yoghurt for babies, that would, if you put these into the babies, reduce their risk of getting asthma, regardless of those other risk factors, like having a caesarean delivery or not being breastfed? Yeah, I think that the two implications of this paper are that, one, we can detect children at high risk for asthma at three months. So we can go in, look for these four microbes, and, and then say, you look, you're at risk for asthma. But that doesn't really help the kid all that much. What you could do is, okay, if you have a child that's at risk, you could say, well, maybe you should get a pet and expose your child to more environmental microbes. But what we are really trying to work on now is to deliver these four microbes as a probiotic-type combination to children that are at risk. So a three-month-old baby is a very fragile being, and we would not like to put willy-nilly all sorts of different microbes into these very early kids. If we can show your child at risk, we know that you have a much higher chance of asthma. And if we can prove these four microbes are safe, we could then think of then adding them back to the child. Or, for example, if a three-month-old has a very severe infection and has to be treated with antibiotics, maybe post-antibiotic treatment, we could come in and supplement them with these microbes to then you know, reduce their risk later in life of these types of diseases. 300 million cases of asthma around the world every year. It's the most common childhood disease. Amazing discovery there. Brett Finlay, those results just came out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Every year, thousands of people are killed or maimed in car crashes. And while devices like airbags are helping to save lives, they're intrinsically slow-acting and limited in their actions. But scientists at the University of California, Los Angeles, are working on a new magnetic material called galphenol that can signal an impact up to a thousand times faster, as John Doman explained to Rosalind Davies. If you picture you have a nice long cylinder with a north pole at one side and a south pole at the other side, we can start with a really strong magnet, we hit it with a force, and it makes it weaker. What's really interesting and useful about this is that we can wrap a few wires around that, and if we have a change in magnetization, we can actually generate an electric current in that wire, and so we can get some useful electrical energy out of this. 
We all probably did that experiment when we were little where you wrap a bunch of wires around a nail and you hook it up to a nine volt battery and you magnetize the nail. You know, you can pick up some paper clips with it or something. We're actually doing the exact opposite. So we're starting with a magnet. And if all of a sudden you turned that magnet off, you would generate an electric current back into that battery. And I'm guessing you're not using nails. What material (laughs) are you using and what makes it so special? So the material that we're using is called galphenol. It's what's known as a highly magnetoelastic material. And so that means that if we apply a force to it, it can cause very large changes in the magnetization. And so for this process we've been describing, that's really ideal um, and very useful for us. It also has some really good mechanical properties. We could actually build some load-bearing structures out of this. We could, say, hit it with relatively large forces, and it remains completely intact. It really doesn't sustain that much damage. And so that's really kind of a novel property in this realm of magnetoelastic materials. What do you think that you could use these materials for? There are a few different spaces you could look at the use for these materials. One of the novel ideas I think we're playing around with is to make these into sort of a wireless impact detector. We have a material where when a force comes through it, it'll change the state of magnetization. And what's really nice is that's kind of the basic premise of how an antenna works. If we had, say, a bunch of this galphenol spread in, say, the bumper or the side panels of a car, if you were impacted, it's going to change the direction of magnetization. And as such, it'll radiate an electromagnetic wave, something that we could pick up. That wave travels at the speed of light. Whereas the impact is going to travel in your vehicle at the speed of sound. That's three orders of magnitude slower. And so that means that really that electromagnetic signal can get to you or get to a computer in your car before the impact really even has a chance of reaching the passengers. A nice fast-acting computer could start to take some sort of action to protect the passengers and really help limit the damage that occurs in these types of impacts. John Damon, and he's just published that work in the Journal of Applied Physics. Now, if you've ever watched wild animals like cheetahs pursuing their dinner, a very striking feature of the chase is that the prey frequently swerves from left to right and right to left as they run away. And this is apparently to wrong-foot the predator. But why does it actually work? Rory Wilson studies how animals move at the University of Swansea. We were really interested in the game of tag that predators play with their prey. We started looking at cheetahs, which have this amazing capacity to run after their prey. But of course, the prey don't want to be caught. And so we set to thinking about, well, what determines whether the cheetah catches its prey and when the prey gets away? And was this using what video footage of predator-prey interactions to measure the different interactions and, and what strategies each use to try to catch or escape from the other? Well, some of us have spent a lot of time looking at cheetahs in particular, but actually it's extremely difficult to get proper information on turns and speeds and so on by just filming them. So we were attaching technology to the cheetahs in collars around their necks. And so when they chased their prey, we could find out things like how rapidly they turn and how many turns they make during a chase and so on and so forth. And then uh, when we recovered the collars, we could take the information off and push it through our computers. And what does this show? What do they do? Cheetahs will take very small prey and they'll take very large prey. The cheetah itself might weigh 30 or 40 kilograms, so as much as a big dog. 
and they'll take prey as small as hares or as big as ostriches sometimes. And one of the things that came out was that their hunting performance and the way they hunted depended on the prey they were trying to catch. And in essence, the bigger the prey, the less the cheetah had to turn to catch them. So the small prey were jinking this way and that, and the bigger prey were just simply trying to run away with only a few big turns in. Why does turning work as a strategy for a small prey item? Why does that help them to get away? If you look at any animal, and that includes big humans, or you look at big animals like rhinoceroses, and you ask them to run, and or they do run, and then they turn as fast as they can, the bigger they are, the wider the turn they will put. A rhinoceros charging along will take a long time, whereas something like a rabbit can turn very rapidly. And uh, there are power reasons for that. And what that essentially means is if you're a rabbit and you're being chased by a cheetah, and the cheetah's nearing, getting closer and closer to you, the thing you need to do is turn because you can actually outturn a cheetah. When the rabbit turns, the cheetah takes proportionally longer. And so therefore the rabbit gains or puts more distance between the two of them. And I presume that the longer the pursuit goes on, the greater the likelihood, therefore, that the cheetah's going to be tired out before it's actually caught up with the rabbit. That's exactly what happens. In other words, you have the first part of a chase where the cheetah runs towards the rabbit or runs towards the antelope and it gets closer and closer because the cheetah is faster. And then there comes a point where unless that animal then turns, it will get caught by the cheetah. And so it tries to do the sharpest turn it can. And if it times it dead right, it will turn really rapidly and the cheetah will overshoot it and then have to come around in a screeching hard, very power intensive turn. If the rabbit, however, turns too early, then the cheetah says, ha, it's turned ahead of me and can cut the corner that the rabbit's put in. So the timing of the turn is really, really critical. You've done this on cheetahs. Is this generalisable? If I take a bigger or a smaller animal than a cheetah, would I see the same law, in inverted commas, applying? Absolutely. And in fact, the physics of it tells us that simply the bigger animals have less power to turn, relatively less power to turn, and so they have these big turning circles. And that means the relative sizes of the predators and the prey are really important. If the predator's bigger than the prey, if you're the prey, the best way to get away is to run like crazy, and then just as the predator's close enough, you turn as fast as you can. If you're bigger than the predator, then really there's very little chance that you can get away by turning. You've just got to run as fast as you can away and hope that your size and your power will enable you to mitigate some of the problems of the predator. What about on the battlefield? If we take the same sorts of things, there, there are issues with, for instance, a missile pursuing an aeroplane or a person pursuing another person. Does the same rule apply, do you think? Absolutely the same rule applies. And in some senses, you can see it in rugby. If someone kicks the ball up to the one end of the field and then rushes up the full bike catches it and then the the big question is how fast should the person rushing up to the fullback rush up because the fullback being stationary can turn rather more quickly have to remember that the your ability to turn depends on your speed and your mass so the lower your speed the the quicker you can turn but the bigger your mass the slower you can turn so the fullback catching the ball and being stationary uh, being charged up by uh, forward from the other side um, if that forward doesn't slow slow down, it's quite easy for the fullback to sidestep and then run up the field. Rory Wilson with uh, what could have been some helpful advice for the England rugby squad. His paper was published in the journal eLife. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? 
The space boffins are joined by two astronauts and the space scientist who knows how to rock a beard. Who else could it be but Rosetta Project scientist Matt Taylor to fill us in on the next stage of Europe's comet-chasing mission. We also hear from NASA astronaut Katie Coleman discussing sustainability and the future of our planet and former ESA astronaut Thomas Reiter on the future of the European Astronaut Corps. Add astronomer Robert Massey and you have the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. We are the Naked Scientists. I'm Kat Arney, and he's Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can find us on Facebook, or just go to the forum on nakedscientist.com slash forum. Still to come, signs that your genes appear to control your ability to recognise faces, and we'll also be talking to the UK's first ever astronaut. But first, stomach antacids might hold the key to preventing you from bleeding to death. Researchers at the University of British Columbia have used the same chemicals found in stomach-settling medicines to develop a blood clotting treatment that can force its way into wounds and stop bleeding. Christian Kastrup explained how it works to Sam Mahaffey. The problem with trying to treat hemorrhage is when you take something that can clot blood, if you take it and try to topically apply it, the blood flow pushes it out, so pushes it away. And so it's really hard to clot the blood at the, the damaged blood vessels. So it's hard to get that, uh, that coagulant deep into the wound. And so what we did is we invented a way to propel therapeutics through flowing blood deep into the wound and, and halt hemorrhage effectively because it, it clotted blood at the damaged blood vessels. What we made were um, propelled particles. The particles, they're made of carbonate. And so when that hits blood, the carbonate and the, the acid that, it, that it's mixed with, it, uh, it reacts and releases carbon dioxide gas. It's very similar to uh, antacid tablets. And so when, uh, when those particles release carbon dioxide gas, the, the bubbles push and pull the particles. They send them in, in all directions, including upstream through flowing blood. So if you were to put those on a cut, they might actually fizz. Would you feel them fizzing? I think you would feel them fizzing. We can clearly see it as the fizzing's occurring. The blood is quickly uh, clotting and, and hemorrhaging stops. But it's interesting, in severe wounds, bleeding often reoccurs over time, over a period of a couple of minutes or a couple hours. And, and when that happens in this case, you can see the agent reactivate and you see additional fizzing and foaming and, and then bleeding will, will halt again. So if the wound was to open up, your treatment would still be working and start fizzing and close it back up again? Yeah, that's right. So it'll, it'll re-fizz and and propel the particles again to halt that hemorrhage. But are there any problems to having carbon dioxide bubbles inside your body when this is happening? So carbon dioxide is a, is a really inert gas. It actually dissolves really easily into blood, and it isn't harmful. So in the end, you know, the blood is not more acidic or basic than when it started. So if these fizzing little particles are pushing the treatment all around the wound, could it potentially go to somewhere where you wouldn't want the blood to clot? It's definitely a major concern of ours throughout the study you know, to understand how far the particles go. We know that the particles can, can transport through wounds and a couple millimeters into, a, into the microvasculature, into the blood vessels around wounds. We haven't found particles past that area, but it's an important question, and we're still evaluating that in additional safety studies. And what have you tested this method of treatment on so far? So we've tested it on a variety of small wounds as well as, as large wounds. So this particular experiment, we used a, a pig model of severe bleeding. We tested it 
in a wound that, that mimics battlefield trauma, where there's a severe um, injury to the femoral artery. And, and this is a very you know, catastrophic bleed that would normally lead to death. But when we applied the propelled particles, rapidly halted hemorrhage. And in those wounds, there, there was complete survival. So you've only tested in animals so far. How long will it be before you could be testing in humans? So compared to, to many technologies of this nature, I think there's actually a really fast plan towards use in the clinic. All the agents used in this technology have already been used in the clinic. So we think there's a, about a three-year time frame until we're able to begin clinical trials. Fantastic news. Christian Kastrup on the work that he's just published in the journal Science Advances. Now, are you one of those people who never forgets a fact but just can't remember a face? If so, then you can probably blame your genes. That's according to new research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week. Researchers have been investigating the genetics of face recognition with the help of a thousand pairs of twins, as Nick Shakeshaft explains to Kat. People differ a lot in, in how good they are at recognising faces. Obviously, being able to, to do this is quite an important social skill, and there's uh, some suggestion that um, it might have been very important from an evolutionary point of view, you know, telling friend from, from foe easily. So we were very interested to look at it from, from that point of view. And being able to do this with a, a twin study allows us to look at the genetic influences um, and relate it to abilities in other areas. So how do you use twins to figure out how genetic something is? Obviously two types of twins, um, identical um, and fraternal twins. Identical twins share all of their genes, whereas fraternal twins share on average only half. But both types share their environments to approximately the same extent. And if we um, compare the degree of similarity, the correlation between identical twins and between fraternal twins, then we can use that in various statistical ways to look at the degree of genetic influence. So if identical twins are better at doing a certain task than non-identical twins, you'd say there's probably more of a genetic component to that ability? Yes, exactly, yes. And also, um, if we look at it um, by comparing genetic influences on different traits... Um, then we can also work out the extent to which they share genes in, in common. How were you actually doing this study? We did it online. Um, so we, we have uh, a large group of, of twins who have been studied uh, throughout their, their lives. And we used a uh, standard um, test of, of face recognition, which just gets people to memorise a set of, of previously unfamiliar faces and then tests their ability to, to recognise them. And what do you find when you look at the data? Does this ability to, to recognise faces, to be good at that, does that seem to be linked to genetics in some way? Uh, yes, there is a substantial genetic component. It is, it is substantially heritable. Um, that in itself isn't unusual. That, that is generally found for, for abilities in lots of different areas. Um, what is unusual is that the genetic influences on it don't seem to be related to the genetic influences on other things. So in general, for example, there aren't genes for reading or genes for maths um, specifically. All of the genetic influences in those areas tend to be shared between them. It tends to be the same genes which are influencing different areas. So there are the same genes that are basically making you good at learning or good at concentrating or good at focusing or something like that, and that enables you to have good ability across all these areas? For example, yes. I mean, undoubtedly, it's, it's, it's um, genes affecting lots of different things in, in lots of different ways, but their, their overall effect in aggregate is sort of shared between lots of, of different areas. And with face recognition, we find exactly the, the opposite. So again, there are considerable genetic influences on these things, um, but they seem to be unique to that area. So the, the genes that generally affect other areas, abilities in other areas, 
um, almost don't affect face recognition at all. There is some overlap, but, but very little. And almost all of the um, genetic influences on face recognition don't seem to influence people's ability in any other area. So what does this mean? Does this mean that the, the face recognition bit of our brain has evolved separately from, from our other abilities? How, how does this all fit together? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, there has been a lot of, of suggestion for, for, for a lot of different reasons that face recognition um, is separate from, from other abilities and that that may have been because it evolved in response to different selection pressures. For example, um, people think that obviously being able to tell friend from foe easily is, is likely to be quite a, a strong survival skill, um, particularly in a very social species like ours. And so there's been a, a suggestion that, that that's... Um, that makes it a, a particularly important thing, which therefore may have, have evolved independently from, from other things. So does this help to explain why I'm good at science and I cannot remember faces <laughs> at all? Quite possibly, yes. And of course, it's perfectly possible to be good at both, but there, there is very little relationship between them. Nick Shakeshaft there from King's College London and calls to mind that very famous quote from Groucho Marx who famously said I never forget a face but in your case I'll make an exception but not in your case of course Kat. Oh, thanks very much Chris. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith also with me Kat Arney and if you'd like to get in touch with the programme it's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can find us on Twitter it's at Naked Scientists. Now this month we're launching, and this is the first, a series of programmes that's going to probe what it's going to take to send people to the red planet. We'll be looking at rocket technology, how to keep people fed and watered away from Earth, and whether we can really hope to exist sustainably on Mars. But this week, we're focusing on the space pioneers who will take the first steps towards getting us there. Now, clearly, Hollywood knew what we had in mind when they unveiled The Martian in the UK cinemas over the last week. Now, if you've not seen it, it's a film that portrays one man's attempt at survival on the red planet. But we're asking, would Matt Damon really make it as an astronaut? Well, in NASA's last round of astronaut selection, they had 6,100 applicants and whittled it down to just eight, giving any one applicant less than half of 1% chance of being successful. So with so many to pick from, how does NASA, or any space agency for that matter, go about finding the chosen few? I got a few tips on how they go about selecting who gets to be the next Neil Armstrong. My name is Anne Romer, and I am the current manager for the Astronaut Selection Programme. I ended up in that job a little bit of luck. We had a gentleman that had done astronaut selection since 1978 who just recently retired, and so I was fortunate to work the last class selection alongside him. NASA does not continuously run astronaut selection. They typically tend to be on average once every four years recently. There's a lot of people apply when you hold one of your recruitment days. What are you looking for? in those applicants? Initially, we are looking for some pretty basic qualifications. Folks are required to have a degree in engineering, physical or biological science or math. We also require that they have a minimum of three years professional experience beyond that degree. And then additionally, if applying as a pilot, they have to have a thousand hours of flying time in a high performance jet aircraft. And so those are our starting points. And then as we get into the selection process and are trying to weed down the number of applicants, we are looking for other things, the combination of educational and operational work experience, adaptability, experience working on a team. 
And how do you actually, how do you go about identifying people who have those skills and traits and characteristics that you know will make the grade? We have quite an involved process. We initially start um, with candidates submitting their resumes and written materials to provide an initial basis by which to evaluate them. Eventually, we are conducting interviews, and we have historically done two rounds of interviews where we're talking to the candidates in person and getting to interact with them. And once you've got someone through the door, what's the chances that they're actually going to get into space? Is it 100% or thereabouts, or or is it actually still quite slim? No, actually, once we have... um, made the commitment and selected them, and they they typically go through a two-year training program as astronaut candidates. We are probably just under 100% of those folks actually fly in space. We've had a few that have not for a wide variety of reasons, but the majority by far end up sticking with their NASA astronaut careers and ultimately flying in space. Would you like to be an astronaut, Anne? Uh, I can honestly say no. I have a slight fear of small confined spaces, so I'm not sure that would be a suitable career objective for me. (laughs) Would you pass your own assessment and selection criteria, do you think? Uh, Probably not. I don't think I'd make an astronaut either, given that I seem to get seasick in a pedalo. NASA's Director of Astronaut Recruitment, but not a would-be astronaut herself, Anne Romer. So, you've made it through a very rigorous selection process and NASA have signed you up. But what physical and mental characteristics actually make for a good astronaut? Dave Green is a lecturer in human and aerospace physiology at King's College London. So, Dave, what are we looking for in an ideal astronaut? So they don't need to be elite athletes. They need to be reasonably fit. But it's this really key thing of having a very low risk of injury and of illness because we don't have the capacity to make them better in space. What about the other physiological challenges that someone will face in space? Because obviously we've evolved to live here on Earth. It's a very different environment up there. What sorts of challenges does that pose and how can people make sure that they can meet that challenge? We've evolved in a gravitational environment, Earth's gravity. And so when we go into space and the absence of that gravitational field means that our body has a number of changes. So we lose muscle because we don't need so much muscle. We lose bone because we don't need so much bone. And that can present problems when we return to Earth or if we land on another planet. If we were to land on Mars and we have much lower bone mineral density, that first step onto the Martian surface could lead to a trip. Are there some people for whom that's less of a problem? Are some people naturally better able to conserve their muscles and bones when they're in those low-gravity environments? That's a really good question, and to be honest, we don't know. All we can do is try our best to to try and ameliorate, to stop these changes. So astronauts spend up to two and a half hours of each day performing what we call exercise countermeasures in order to stop this loss of bone and this loss of muscle. Because if you load up the bones and you load up the muscles with some kind of exercise, this sends a signal saying to the body, you do actually need to preserve your bone, you do actually need to preserve your muscle, and it keeps them strong. Absolutely. But despite that two and a half hours spent doing exercise, when frankly there's lots of other activities the astronaut should be doing, it's not completely prevented the loss of muscle and the loss of bone. So there's still much work to be done. What about the thing that uh, Kat alluded to, the sense of giddiness that many people describe and, and that kind of thing? Are some people much more capable of coping with that? 
the reality is most of us become motion sickness and, and astronauts are not immune to it either. The difficulty is knowing just how many astronauts experience what we call space adaptation syndrome. If you ask an astronaut when they have flight status, of course they'll say, oh, I didn't feel sick. Then when they retire, you find out that up to 70% of astronauts will then admit to feeling extremely sick. And what we do know is lots of antiemetics, so drugs that stop people feeling sick, they are consumed on the International Space Station. So we don't know who's taken them, but we know huge amounts have been taken. Now, one of the other physical demands that are faced by astronauts is exposure to extreme G-forces. Now, we can actually test how these affect the body without having to leave the ground at all by placing a person in a device that spins them around at very high speed. This is called the human centrifuge. The one that we've got here in Britain was built in the 1950s. It's capable of 30 revs a minute, and that's equivalent to 9G. Our space boffin, Sue Nelson, went to give it a go. It's all locked in, so what I need you to do now is just tighten your straps. That's enough. Yeah, happy. Right, so you just got to put your feet on the, um, the pedals there. Okay. And all you've got to be happy that you can just tense up your legs if you need to, mm-hmm. uh, in case uh, the vision comes in and you lose it. Uh, and do you have any advice? Do I have to actually just sit here as I would normally, as I, if I was watching TV, or do I have to tense my I muscles would, up? To get the most out of the situation, I try and be as relaxed as you can. Relax. It's always difficult in the first run because you don't know what to expect. Expense, yeah. But try and be as relaxed as you can and just watch what happens to the vision, see how it feels. We'll start very low. Okay. So the risk of actually losing consciousness because you haven't got enough blood going to your brain is very, very low. So it'll just give you a feel of what it's like. It's uh, sort of the acceleration you might get or the gravity you might feel at Jupiter, that kind of level. So 2.6G, so fair amount. But not enough to knock you out, but enough to make you feel two and a half times heavier than you are now. So what you can do is we we say be relaxed and try and move your hands up a bit. Control your hands. Just feel how heavy they weigh at that level. Uh, just be just be thoughtful that obviously when you bring your hands up they weigh two and a half times but they will come down a lot quicker because they weigh a lot more yeah feel it okay take me to Jupiter stand by 2.6 G 15 seconds and uh, it's just building up now so describe how you feel oh I've just gone to the right hand side and I can feel the pressure on my cheeks forcing back my cheeks as if it's stretching my face I will relax to make it easier. And my ears have popped slightly. Oh, and it's turned and gone upright again. Wow. What a weird feeling. Describe the feeling when it stopped. Your stomach lurching as if you've gone over that top of a roller coaster and suddenly stopped, and the pressure relieving from your cheekbones. Would like to do up it to something like 3.4 G. And what would that be like? You'd feel a, obviously a little bit more heavy. I won't ask you to touch your nose, um, but if you just uh, concentrate on keeping your vision and uh, tensing your abdomen and legs, um, you shouldn't grey out at all. Okay. <laughs> uh, in that case, Graham, we'll go for 3.4 G for 15 seconds, please. Stand by. 3.4 G, 15 seconds. Get ready to tense if you need to. That's 3.4. Ever. <laughs> I don't think I could have touched my nose if I tried. 
No, it uh, it does make a significant difference, but it was worth uh, is worth just feeling the weight of your arms at three and a half times the normal weight. And feeling that stretch on your face. Whoa. Yes, we know what you look like when you're going to be 15 years older now. <laughs> what was that like? Let's get the immediate reaction. I really enjoyed it. It's given me a newfound respect for what astronauts must go through on takeoff and landing because it's not just a, a thrill ride, which I love. There is that feeling of uncomfortableness. For me, it was in my face. I felt as though my face was being dragged down with the pressure. That was space boffin Sue Nelson and uh, Richard Hollingham at the end there trying out Kinetic's human centrifuge. Dave Green, who's a lecturer in human and aerospace physiology at King's College London, is still with us. So, Dave, tell us what was actually happening to Sue there. So as Sue was spinning around on, on the axis, the gondola tilted so that her feet were pointing towards the centre, the axis of rotation. And what then happened was all the fluid was being moved down towards her feet. She mentioned that uh, she started to get grey out. So you, you lose colour in your vision and you actually get curtaining, so you lose your peripheral vision. That's the, the warning sign before you get what we call G-lock, which is G-induced loss of consciousness. So because fluid and blood is being moved down towards your feet, there isn't enough blood to supply the eyes and then there isn't enough blood to supply the brain. So the brain essentially switches off. So you should take care when you see that grey out to start doing those anti-G straining manoeuvres. That was when they made reference to tensing her muscles. What does that do? Increase the amount of blood returning to the heart to keep your blood pressure up? Exactly. So if you tense the, the calves and your legs, you use them as basically pumps. So we call that a muscle pump. So you're pumping blood back to the heart so that it can pump it around to the rest of the body, not back up to the brain. Sue tolerated 3.5G there. What would be the equivalent for an astronaut in a day-to-day -day sort of takeoff and landing situation? So the G can uh, go up to 7G, and there have been instances where it's gone over 7Gs on the return to Earth, so that was a real bump. But, of course, one we have to remember, in space, in weightlessness, there's no G. So rather than fluid being moved down towards your feet, it gets moved up towards your face. So you get what we call chicken legs, pig face. I was discussing with David, I think I'm not cut out for a, being an astronaut because of my physical capabilities. But what about the mental challenges of space travel? What sort of personality traits are we looking for when we're selecting an astronaut? So, Dave, what sort of things would make a great astronaut? What do we look for? Firstly, they have to be very competent. They have to be really good at maths and mental arithmetic. They have to be able to remember really long and complicated sequences of, of tasks and be able to perform them when there's real stress, when there's, when there's a, a real problem. But there's also these, the softer skills, so cooperation, collaboration, knowing when to be the leader, when to, to take a step back. A little bit like The Apprentice. The team member that's always wanting to be team leader isn't really the best person to be in your team. And what about kind of sociability? I mean, do you need introverts, extroverts, party animals, you know, or do you just need like one party animal per crew? Well, it sounds like a question that we really should have the answer to. But to be honest, we don't. I think one of the things is you need to be able to deal with conflict, but not to run. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. So you need to face up to that conflict, but to diffuse it in a positive way. And there's lots and lots of tasks that astronauts might have to do, ranging from, you know, the, the very stressful situation of takeoff to, you know, the, the mundane stuff on board. Do you need people that have a very wide range of skills, you know, that can tolerate that sort of the mundaneness of space life? 
well, much of being in space is doing the mundane tasks. And you need people that can do those tasks, but understand that a small task that could, in some senses, be insignificant is important to the bigger picture to the whole mission. So the Russians love the uh, making paper. Like origami kind of stuff. Yes. Um, And you think, well, what's that going to do with space flight? But by monitoring people doing the same task, time and time again, but to a high performance, to a very high level, that's the kind of person you you need in space. So someone who can do endless amounts of origami patiently and correctly. But how else would you test people's things like team skills and that kind of stuff? So one of the things is you need to to have people that are high-functioning people, people that are good at things, but that see that bigger picture. So you get them to do tasks where you don't give them all the information and you put them in pairs or in groups and so that there's an outcome for the whole group and you have to be working so that they are doing what they need to do but they're not compromising the overall goals of, of the team. The next thing is the isolation. I mean, I, I find it hard enough, you know, working with Chris and the team sometimes but what about if we were on Mars, just us, forever? You know, how do you train people or, or select people who can cope with that kind of isolation? On Earth, there's uh, three main models of being so isolated. There's the NEMO, which is what NASA use. They become aquanauts. So it's a a habitat that's 19 metres down off uh, Key Largo in Florida. And so they go down and they live and work there for 7 to 14 days. Then the Russians did something called Mars 500. And so they had an international crew staying in a, basically in a warehouse that was mocked up to be a little bit like a spacecraft for 520 days. Not a lot of fun, but they ultimately knew they were in Moscow. And then there's Concordia, which is in Antarctica. And actually, that's the best thing, because nine months, you're on your own. No one can come and help you. And presumably, no one can hear you scream. So uh, thanks very much. That's Dave Green. He's a lecturer in human and aerospace physiology at King's College London. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and with Chris Smith. Now, clearly being an astronaut is absolutely no picnic with all these vomit-inducing G-forces and intense psychological challenges. So why would anyone really consider it? Well, in 1991, Helen Sharman became the first British astronaut when she flew to the Mir space station with Russian cosmonauts. Connie Orbach went to meet her and to find out what enticed her into such a demanding career choice. Oh, I started off wanting to be a nurse because my mum was a nurse and then I thought it'd be nice to do something a bit more mechanical engineering-y kind of, but I didn't really know what called mechanical engineering I just wanted to work with machines and um, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do and then I wanted to be a doctor so I chopped and changed and I really wasn't sure but I always knew that it had to be something that involved science something logical something perhaps constructive but um, yeah science engineering it was always somehow in there. So how did you go from that to being an astronaut? I decided as I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I had to make a decision of sorts, um, that um, at 18 I would go off to university to do chemistry, because with chemistry I could go physical or I could go biological, lots of different things you can do with chemistry. And as I was unsure, that seemed like a keep my options open kind of thing to do. Um, and then at the end of my chemistry degree, I knew I wanted From university, to do Helen continued exploring the world of science in London, where she first worked at an electronics factory and then at Mars Confectionery as a research technologist working on ice cream and chocolate. Until I just heard an opportunity as I was driving home from work, listening to the car radio, and um, there was an advert that came on, Astronaut Wanted. And this job advert just described an opportunity that I had never even considered. And if I'm honest, I applied not so much to go into space, 
but I applied to do the training because what other job would give you the ability to use your science, learn about the technology of spacecraft and so on, live in another country, speak Russian, um, and do some physical training, all part of the same job. Wow, you know, this is the job for me. So I applied for the job, and um, yeah, yes, of course I wanted to go into space, but I, I would have gone for the job even if I knew the space wasn't going to be at the end of it. What sort of training did you have to go through before you could go to space? I first had to learn Russian because all the training was being done in Russian and also, of course, on a Russian-speaking space station, if you have an emergency situation, the last thing you need to be doing is getting out your dictionary to wonder what the commander's telling you to do. And then some theoretical training. Um, so we learned about the theory of flight and ballistics, um, astro-navigation. Gradually it got more and more practical. Um, things like uh, parachute jumps in order to do the weightless training called the Vomit Comet, up and down in a series of loops. But while the aircraft is falling, you're falling inside the aircraft. So you're just in free fall, which is what you know what weightlessness is about. You're not truly weightless. You know, you have weight, you're still being pulled down by the Earth's gravity, but you don't feel it. That must have been amazing. It is I mean everybody agrees it's the best bit of all the trading. Everybody looks forward to it. We get to do it four times and each time there are ten loops. I hope you don't get too seasick. A lot of people get sick, which is why it's called the Vomit Comet, um, and it's the type of people who are typically motion sick on Earth, and if you tend to be travel sick, you tend to be sick in the Vomit Comet, and you also tend to be sick when you get into space, so it's actually quite a good selector in some respects as well. So when you've done all this training, when you finally went up there to do this work, how was it? Did it live up to the expectations? It was exactly as the training has taught me. The actual feeling though you can never really duplicate on earth it takes your body really two days or so to adjust to feeling weightless because the, the fluid shift and the fluids in your body tend to move towards your head and to start with because your heart is still pumping if you like towards your head because your heart thinks oh you know i've got to pump up to keep all this blood pressure in the brain to stop the poor person from fainting but you don't need that so much in space so your brain tells your kidneys to excrete extra urine and um, and you then feel much better but still your body is continuing to adapt even though you don't then notice it so you continue to lose calcium from the bones and potassium from the muscles um, but no after two days it felt great um, and I, I felt as though I wanted to be up much longer I always reckon about three months is ideal Helen's mission was only eight days, so much shorter than most of today's astronauts, who usually go for around six months. Are there different skills required for this modern-day, long-term space travel? The difference nowadays to the early astronauts is that um, nowadays people need to be team players, whereas in the early days they were sort of the, the real right stuff, the fighter pilots, highly reactive people, and they needed to be. They tended not to make good team players they wouldn't make good modern astronauts and probably modern astronauts wouldn't make good sort of right stuff fighter pilot type of, you know, the, um, you know, the, the originals where they really did have to... Um, they were the brave ones. They were the, the real explorers. I mean, we were... Um, I'm often called an explorer, but I don't think of myself as such. I explored science, but I went into parts of space where other people had been. I went to a spacecraft where other people had been. If today's astronauts aren't intrepid explorers, but patient team players, it all sounds a little less exciting. Does anyone even want to be an astronaut anymore? I popped out onto the streets of London to see what the kids of today want to be when they grow up. Hiya. What would you like to be when you grow up? Um, a teacher. 
Uh, please. Right now I'm thinking an engineer. Cafe lady. I would like to be an acrobat. A train. Astronaut. I'm not sure, though I think I might want to be a vet. So not the most scientific test, but it doesn't seem like astronaut is most people's first choice. What about Helen Sharman? She could do it again, would she? Everybody wants to go back into space. I have not met a single astronaut who would not return. Um, however old they are, you know, everybody would, would return to space. That was the UK's first ever astronaut, Helen Sharman, and she was speaking with Connie Orbach. So awesome. She is my hero. Well, Helen Sharman was the first British astronaut, but in mid-December, Tim Peake will be the second when he joins the International Space Station, or ISS. But of course, this mission isn't just about Tim. And without the help of many others, it would never be possible. Libby Jackson from the UK Space Agency is here to tell us about the many person hours and expertise that it really takes to get an astronaut into space. Hi, Libby. Hi. So can you just give me a picture of the scale of the team that it takes to take someone like Tim or or Helen before him into space? Well, Tim and the five other crew who will be up there with him really are the tip of a huge pyramid that stretches right around the world. It's hard to put an an overall number on, but suffice to say, around the world, it, it stretches into the thousands of people who are up keeping Tim and his crew up in space. What kind of jobs are they doing? I mean, I can think of the obvious ones like the people in the flight centre doing the countdown. Tell me about some of those roles and then maybe some of the more perhaps unexpected ones. So, as you said, people that often people think about are the mission controllers and they're there around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, looking after the crew, being there to respond to any problems that happen and so on. There's the scientists. The ISS is first and foremost a scientific laboratory. And whilst we see the crew do a lot of the human physiology experiments, there are many, many other experiments that are done with very little impact on the crew time. And those are being run by scientists around the world. You've got all the trainers. The astronauts need to be trained. They go through years of training to make sure that they are ready for the science, for the emergencies, for their spacewalks and so on. You've got the engineers who design these things. There are the people who built it. There are the medics. There are the doctors. There are the lawyers. There are the people like myself looking after the education program. The list is truly endless. I heard a recent talk from uh, Dallas Campbell about the history of the spacesuit. And it was just, oh, yeah, all these, these people who make and design and test the spacesuits for each individual astronaut. There are so many interesting roles, and and one of the ones I like to always tell children about are the people who who look after where everything is on the space station. So the space station is the size of about a five-bedroomed house, um, and it's got six people living in and working in it. But unlike your house at home, the occupants change every three months. And some things aren't used every day. Some things are only used every, every few years, for example. And we've got people all around the world, they're called Cosmos here in Europe, whose job it is is to keep track of everything. So when the crew uh, want to know where something is, uh, they're asking the people on the ground. Wow, um, I really need one of those in my house. I mean, it's such a, a big team like this. This must be a lot of money. I mean, what's, what sort of financial scale does it take for, say, a, a typical mission? Well, the figure that's usually quoted for the ISS as a whole, and it's been flying since 2000 and was being designed for many years before that, is about 100 billion US dollars. So it's a huge chunk of money. But the UK's only very recently um, just joined the ISS program. Historically, we we didn't do human spaceflight. And at the Eastern Ministerial in, in 2014, we contributed 50 million pounds about towards the ISS program, which has brought our scientists access to the research facilities, to the scientific laboratories, for the opportunity for Tim to go up there himself and 
provide this wonderful inspiration to everybody. And we're really making the most of that, capitalizing on it for the next generation to inspire them to hopefully take up careers in science and engineering. I think it's probably worth more than that. Um, But we're we're talking now about potentially missions to Mars. Uh, You know, we've done the moon, we're going into space, all this kind of thing. What do we still need to do in terms of space programs to actually get spaceships that could start going towards Mars? What can we do and what still do we need to figure out? I think one of the big things we're still learning about are the things that we need to do to get humans there. So we've been talking today about the physiological changes. Just one of the small areas that we really still are investigating, and it's one of the experiments uh, Tim may be participating in, is looking at how the eyes change. Dave was talking about all the fluid shifts and how how the fluid moves around your body. And we're finding out more and more that um, over a six-month or a one-year mission, astronauts' eyesight can change. And sometimes people have come back uh, to Earth after six months and have had very bad changes to their eyesight. Some cosmonauts at some point even reported that they couldn't see their procedures in the Soyuz capsule on the way home. Sometimes that eyesight change is permanent, in fact. But that's just one area where we're still doing scientific experiments to understand how this will change and how we can get to Mars. The trip there will take six months to a year. Thanks very much. That's Libby Jackson from the UK Space Agency. And thanks also to our other guests this week, Anne Romer, David Green and the wonderful Helen Sharman. And finally this week to our question of the week. Caris Lestrange has been trying to answer this electrifying question from Anders. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Why do power lines make so much noise? On Facebook, Rachel speculates that it's when there's too much electricity and some tries to escape, whereas Henry thinks it's down to vibrations, or as Stephen said, good vibrations. Meanwhile, Andrew Griffiths is a semiconductor engineer from the company IQE. In power lines themselves, the noise is usually due to something called a coronal discharge, which is when the electric field is strong enough to make the surrounding air conduct. The sound you're hearing is a transfer of energy from the power line to the surrounding air. Designers of power lines want to avoid this noise as it results in a power loss, but it's partially dependent on atmospheric conditions such as the air pressure and humidity. For example, if it rains, the noise can become louder due to the increased humidity and addition of water droplets on the surface of the wires. This creates a more conductive environment. The corona discharge and therefore the noise can be reduced by making sure the power lines are thicker and the spacing between the power lines is sufficient. This energy loss can also be reduced by decreasing the voltage. However, if we decrease the voltage, the current then increases. This increased current causes more power loss due to heating, so you have to balance how much energy high voltage loses in noisy corona discharge and how much low voltage transmission would lose in heat. But why does the discharge produce a steady buzzing sound? Electricity is distributed to homes via alternating current. Alternating current is where electric current moves backwards and forwards at 50 times a second, Any noise that you hear in power lines or transformers is associated with this frequency. So the noise is a 50 hertz buzz produced as the voltage rises and falls in the cable 50 times per second. But what causes the voltage and current to alternate like this in the first place? Domestic electricity is generated by a process called electromagnetic induction, which converts movement into electricity. It does this by rotating a magnet relative to some wires. As the magnet turns, the voltage goes positive and negative because of how the wires are set up. This positive and negative change in voltage pushes and pulls the current in two directions. 
Thank you to Andrew Griffiths from IQE for that answer. Next week, we're hitting the road for Marco. I was driving my truck, pulling a 53-foot trailer, and it blew over due to a strong wind. I was wondering if you could work out the wind speed so that I know when to stop driving. Sounds dangerous. If you know the answer, or if you have a question for us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or join the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that wraps things up for this week. Thank you to Connie Orbach for production, and join us next time on Destination Mars, when we'll be seeing how we'll actually get to the rocky red planet. What's it going to be like for the lucky few who are on board that spacecraft? How will they eat, sleep and wash in space? And how are they going to survive nine months in microgravity and exposed to cosmic radiation? Join us next week to find out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.